A few months ago, Emilio was speaking here after he got back from Cape Town, South Africa, and he said something about his own experience in ministry, which becomes clear this morning. We're going to do Nehemiah 3 this morning, so if you want to start turning to Nehemiah 3, you're welcome to do so, or scrolling up on your phone to find Nehemiah 3. One of the things Emilio said about his own ministry and his own experience was that there was an announcement of his ministry, there was a preparation for his ministry, and there was a fulfillment for his ministry. And as we worship this morning, I just want to mention Emilio and his family are away this morning. Part of his ministry, like we shared last week at the congregational meeting, is for him to be pursuing Youth for Christ chapter for all of Cape Cod so that teenagers all over Cape Cod can walk with Jesus. It's what he'll do upstairs on a Tuesday night for this part, but he's connecting in other towns, and he's at another church this morning with his family sharing what God could do. So please be remembering him in prayer and his family as well as they continue to seek new people and new works of God around the Cape for teenagers. But he shared with us a few months ago that, that he's in that fulfillment stage. There was an announcement from God, you're going to have a ministry on Cape Cod to teenagers. There was a long preparation season. He talked about this long season, but there's fulfillment. And this morning in Nehemiah 3, it's a fulfillment kind of moment for these wall builders. It's a fulfillment moment, and I'm going to read it, and we'll read along together the word of the Lord. Verse one, and I'm going to start actually in chapter 2, uh, verse 20. The reason that I'm doing that is because verse 1 of chapter 3 starts with then, so-and-so, and you'll see, but if it says, then so-and-so did these things, well, it kind of helps me to go back a verse. So I'm going to go back a verse just to help us catch up. Verse 20 of chapter 2. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. And then verse 1 of chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. Next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Now the sons of Hasanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Meramot, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, made repairs. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Baana, also made repairs. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Joiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besadiah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Melatiah the Gibeonite and Jadon the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, also made repairs for the official seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramoth, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabniah, made repairs. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahat Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of Furnaces. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars and a thousand cubits of the wall to the refuse gate. 
Malkijah, the son of Rakab, the official of the district of Beit Hakarem, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Shalom, the son of Kol Hazet, the official of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars, and the wall of the pool of Shelah at the king's garden, as far as the steps that descend from the city of David. I'll just give you credit. It's easy to lose track, right? I mean, I'm pausing. For those of you who managed to keep up, some of you have already gone back to sleep. You woke up for the sermon. You've already gone back to sleep. Those of you who stayed awake are probably thinking, maybe I can start sleeping in church on Sundays. I mean, this is a lot, right? I mean, it's a lot. Like, it's 2023. These names are tough. We don't have a clue where the Tower of Furnaces is, the refuse gate. I mean, it's, it's pretty difficult. I just want to say, if you are still awake, and you want a way to organize this passage, I just encourage you with three keys, people, partnership, and pragmatic passion. I know you're hearing about bolts and bars and gates and people's names and all the rest, but there's people, there's partnership, and there's pragmatic passion. I'm going to pause on the reading. This is God's word. Every word in here is something the Lord wanted us to hear, but I'm going to pause on reading it for just a moment because I want you to understand that kingdom work includes everyone. Look deeper than just the names, the towers, the gates, the bolts, the bars, such and such, and all this kind of stuff that we're hearing about. Who made the repairs? We didn't get all the way through it, but if you do get all the way through it, or you want to go home, do it later, there's 38 different names from 42 different groups of people, groups of people being like Tekoites or priests or something like that. There's groups and there's a bunch of names, 38 workers from 42 different groups. These people, if you read the whole chapter, you'd see there's priests, there's goldsmiths, there's homeowners, there's brothers, there's daughters, there's perfumers, there's zealous people. One person's described as zealous people. There's Levites. There's people described as keepers of the east gate. You look at all of these different people who work together, and I think you'll realize that doesn't happen a whole lot. Football teams playing against each other don't work together. The coaches don't work together. The players don't work together. The trainers, the people who inflate the footballs, they don't work together. Politicians typically don't work together. People in business typically don't work together. People of different socioeconomics don't typically work together. People who live in different towns don't typically work together. Maybe firefighters, if they have a mutual aid agreement, will kind of come together and work on something across two different towns out here. But the church can be different than most of these groups that don't work together. God brought us together to work in the power of the Spirit. People in partnership, God's people in partnership, achieve heavenly endeavors because they work together. Let's put Nehemiah in modern times, switch away from the bolts and the bars and the gates and all this kind of stuff. Pretend you and me go out to lunch. We're eating some of your pancakes that are left over. We're having brunch. We're eating some of your pancakes that are left over. We're out there and you say, hey, what are you doing lately? And I say, oh, I started a new business. And you're like, oh yeah? And I said, yeah, what? you say, what's the business? I said, well, Cape Cod's got a lot of sand, right? And you're like, yeah. I'm like, well, I took a lot of sand. I started a concrete business. Cause you know, you take sand, you mix it up, you do some things, it becomes concrete. And that's great. Cause then you can, you know, have more building projects going on and, and whatever, some in sand. You say, oh yeah, how'd you find a bunch of people to do that? You know, where'd you get those people? I hired a bunch of priests. You know, I found a bunch of priests. They were kind of underemployed, you know? So I just hired them and you'd be like, 
so they have like CDLs and stuff. That's a special driver's license for driving heavy equipment. No, no, they can't operate heavy equipment. Front end loaders, excavate. No, no, they can't do any of that. Strong backs. No, they're not. They're not very strong. <laughs> You'd be like, I don't. I don't think this business is gonna work. Like, you know. Well, it does though when it's the people of God doing the work of God. It is, though, when it's a group of people saying, the Lord wants this done, we'll say yes to it. We won't run into a barrier of finding out that we don't have what it takes as long as we're trusting in the Lord, as long as we're willing to put in the work, because this is building a wall. It's a little bit like Stephanie just talking about how we need a few nursery volunteers. She didn't ask for rocket scientists, you know, for the record. She didn't ask for something super complex. She also didn't ask for a forever commitment. She and I were talking before the service, you know, once a month is what a lot of those people do who help out in the nursery. So it's not rocket science. It doesn't last forever. Other than that, though, as we think about building the wall, we face another barrier. It's ourselves. What I mean by that is not that there's something wrong with you, but that at a lot of times if we're about to try something, many of us will immediately start to think of our inadequacies. We'll start to talk about what we can't do. And you're in good company. If this is you, Moses did it. God appears to Moses, burning bush out in the wilderness. God says, I want you to go to Egypt, deliver my people, which is a huge undertaking with a very powerful Pharaoh. And Moses says, I'm not good at talking. <laughs> which is to miss the point that God is good at appearing in a bush and setting it on fire, but not making the bush burn up. And yet Moses is thinking, well, I'm not very good at talking. Well, God didn't ask him to talk, right? God said, go, I'll use you. And he says, I'm not a good public speaker. With God, our inadequacies, which may be true. We may, I'm not saying you're believing lies about yourself. It might be this true shortcoming. But with God, these should never be our focus. Scripture says nothing's impossible with God. Nothing is too difficult for him. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That's the scriptures. They say God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Now, you're probably sitting there saying, well, thanks for the compliment, Ben. That's very nice of you. A few of you are kind enough to come to me sometimes and say that you appreciate me or something. And now here I am up here saying, oh, <laughs> chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Thanks. That's sort of a compliment that I didn't really want today. At our conversation last Sunday after worship, you know, we had a conversation about like what we were doing, what we have been doing, what we could have been doing, just honest dialogue with each other about our church. And, and I heard a few people say things I've said before that we don't necessarily feel like we're a leader. We don't necessarily feel like we're this strong go-getter or we're going to start, so, you know, and, and there was some honesty in the room, which I really appreciated because I've felt like I'm not a mover and a shaker in the world. I'm not some person who's ready to accomplish great things. I don't think of myself in those terms. And in that same way, I'd share with you, do you know what the worst sermon I ever heard was? It was my own sermon. <laughs> I was 17. I was brand new in church. And people at that church, I was a high school student, people said, you're going to be a preacher someday. You just don't, or pastor someday. You don't know it. And I mean, I didn't even know what that was. Like, I mean, I didn't know there was like a job. I just knew this guy showed up on Sunday morning, you know. And so I'm like, ah, okay. So they made the mistake of asking me to preach one Sunday night. I say that it was a mistake because it was the worst sermon I've ever heard, but also because my sermon was only eight minutes long. And you probably won't get this opportunity in life, but 
looking back, one of the most interesting things is to get asked to preach and then to have no idea what you're doing and then to get up and do it and then to be done and to look out at the pastor and to see him be like, I think he just prayed and said amen and it's been eight minutes. Like, I mean, the look on that guy's face as he thought like, now what for the remaining, you know, 30 minutes or whatever. I didn't even know then that there's like a time, you know, but he's just like, all right. So he gets up there and, you know, it's like, well, let me think about how to fix this because that sermon was terrible. And some of you are saying some things never change. It's just longer. But my point is this. Should 17-year-olds never, ever preach? Well, I, I think, yeah, they, they should preach. They should preach. Now, in my case, somebody should have met me at the church a few Thursdays before and said, this is like actually what you're supposed to do, you know, because I had no idea how to prepare. I'd never even given a public speech like a, you know, I'd never even like spoken publicly and I was an introvert. So, but if somebody, you know, if somebody said, could you do that sermon over again? I'd say, yeah, yeah, let's do that sermon over again. Just meet me beforehand. And the reason why is it's getting the work done. The scriptures do require ministry qualifications for elders, for example. The scriptures have a standard there. If we want to work in the nursery, there's certain requirements because you're working with children. But generally, the scriptures say people serve according to their gifts. People serve according to needs that are basic and can be met. Mostly, God's word encourages anybody to do almost all the work of the church because it's the church's work. And I say to you, don't wait until you're perfect. Don't have your own like Moses moment and never get past it. Like, don't wait until you're perfect. Don't wait until you're somebody else. Don't wait until you've got the perfect strategy to do it just right. God's weakness is greater than your strengths. And God's strengths are greater than your weaknesses. So you can move forward in faith. Secondly, kingdom work connects all of us in God's work. People in partnership achieve heavenly endeavors. In Nehemiah 3, you'll see, there we go, yep, kingdom work takes all of us. That's what I have up there. In Nehemiah 3, the way that this reflects is that you'll remember, right, all these names next to them, next to them, next to them, next to them, name after name after name after name, next to them, next to them, next to them, next to them. Next to them, so-and-so did so-and-so, and so-and-so did so-and-so. The Jews were in communication with each other, and they were in coordination with each other. And Nehemiah is not mentioned. You keep reading, you know, you'll hear it later, but so far, you didn't even hear Nehemiah before I stopped reading. Nehemiah wasn't micromanaging. I had a boss once who micromanaged me. It's not real great. If you haven't had that privilege in life, I hope you don't. It's not real great. Nehemiah is the opposite. You build the wall near you. Priests at the sheep gate, so-and-so at the house. That, that's like their house, the wall right by their house, right? So-and-so by this gate, so-and-so. That's the one near them. Figure it out, Nehemiah says. If you can make perfume, you can build the wall. If you can be a goldsmith, you can build the wall. If you're willing to do the work, you can build the wall. But here's the rub. For those of us who are not professional wall builders... Just a little insight. When you're building a wall, it has to connect to the wall next to it. Otherwise, you have what's called a gap or a hole. So like the walls have to connect. The Jews had to talk to each other. Can you imagine if someone finished the section of the wall and said, look at that, what a beaut. 
some other sharp individual come along and says, you know, you didn't build it straight and it doesn't connect to the wall next to it? Like, did you notice that the walls don't, there's a hole, like it's a gap, you know? Did you, uh, uh, well, but it looks, no, Jerusalem, we have a problem. <laughs> we built a wall that doesn't connect. They had to work it out. They had to talk to each other. This is why neighbors sometimes have problems. I know you've never had a problem with your neighbor, but fences. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to a homeowner who'll like pass on to me, which we've owned a home before, but it was, we didn't need fences at that particular situation, so we didn't encounter this. But lots of people say, well, we want a fence. We're gonna put up a fence. And then they get into the conversation with the neighbor. Well, the neighbor wants a white picket fence that's short. We need a you know, privacy fence that's tall. And then there's this other kind of fence where like, you put up the posts and you put up half the boards on your side and the neighbor puts up half the boards on their side alternating. So it like saves money, but you kind of have this thing. And you know, this is the trouble like, you know, with neighbors, it's like, well, we don't want that wall or we don't want the fence like this. But the people of God can say, we do this right. Because we're connected, we're coordinating, we're in dialogue about each other and the work. And for us, we're a family. Living Hope Family Church. We can talk with each other. We can be partners in this. We can think about how do my activities, whatever they are, intersect and overlap with what someone else is doing. Make sure our walls connect. Make sure our work connects. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, God says everyone has spiritual gifts. Paul's writing that letter to the Corinthian Christians and he says everybody's got spiritual gifts. It came from God. It's a gift you have to serve him. It's a gift you have to transform the world. It's a gift you have to be salt and light. So use it. And the body, uh, the, the church, he says, is like a body. There's a head and a neck and arms and foot and toes, and we need them all. We need them all. They've all got their part. They've all got their place. God's desire is a growing family of Christ followers. And that's a big mission. And Nehemiah 3 makes it plain that He's not saying, well, we're only asking the builders to stand up or we're only asking the young and the strong or this or that or whatever kind of things. He's saying, everybody get involved. Everybody get involved. The mission of God is bigger than any one person. We talked this past Sunday about our desires and our needs, dreams, things we'd like to do, things we feel led by the Lord to do. Some of it's what we've done before. Some of it's what we've never done before. But our confidence is in God. He's not done with us yet. That's what we sang, right? He's not done with us yet. He's got another adventure in his mission through the church. And Nehemiah 3 shows thousands of people were helping. Not all of them were contractors. Not all of them were young and strong. Not all were homeowners. There's a whole bunch of normal Jews who heard Nehemiah say, it's bad, let's build. That was part of what he said in chapter 2. It's bad, let's build. And they knew it and they acted on it and they said, let's go. And there's interdependence here, not independence, but interdependence. They're working next to each other. They're depending on each other. When we know what God wants us to do, we can communicate and we can coordinate and we can end up with a wall that connects. What you do, I just want to encourage you privately, individually, what you do matters. How you live your life, I'm saying. I'm not talking about the wall necessarily because there is no wall for us in that sense. What you do matters in your home, next to your home, at your workplace, what you're teaching your children, what you're telling yourself just in your mind. If you're having your Moses moment saying, I can't do this or I'm not good at such and such, 
That's, that's sort of trickling down and spreading around because we're interdependent. We're a body, head, neck, foot, toes. We need it all. We need each of us. How you're growing in your faith matters. It has an impact on all of us. It has an impact on the rest of the community. And as a church, we have a particular calling from God. It's to pursue worship. It's to pursue discipleship, and it's to pursue missions. It's why we're part of supporting Charlie Curtis and others. It's why Emilio is away this morning with his family, saying there's a vision God has for the youth of Cape Cod, and he recognizes that's coming out of our church, and we're active in that. That's very local. That's very much part of who we are as a community. It's in our zip code. It's in our county. It's in our area. And we get to ask God in this new chapter as a church, what do you want us to build? What specifically is God saying that would increase worship? or make disciples, or spread the gospel. That's why we had a congregational conversation Sunday. It's why we're glad to hear from you, so that we can think about how does that specifically happen? What does that specifically mean? What do we do? What do we not do? What do we start? What do we stop? What do we restart? We've got fresh direction coming from God for the way that we follow him. We're building something here. We're building something here. You have a contribution to make, and when you don't seek out what God wants you to build, how he wants you to be part of that, do you know what happens? There's a hole in the wall. There's a hole in the wall. Because he's not hindered, you know? I know, I just want to keep encouraging. Like, it's easy to say, well, I don't have this, and I don't have that. And there are real things I don't have. Like, for example, leading worship. I mean, I don't sing. You know, it's an easy thing. Like, I, I was trying this morning to see if I could clap on beat. You know, I was trying to listen closely to Luke. Like, I can't do it. I can't do it. There's certain things not available to me, but I'm not going to like focus on my inadequacies over and over again because there's something else I can build. There's something else I can do. I don't want to leave a hole in the wall, and I would invite you, don't leave a hole in the wall either. Use what you can. There's something else that comes up as a barrier sometimes that I think is really interesting in the church. I think we can skip out on our purpose because somehow it just kind of feels different at church, but... What I'm getting at when I say that sort of skipping out on our purpose, it's this. I mean, who, who, which of you would go to a movie theater, buy the popcorn, go in, find a nice seat at just the right angle, just the right distance from the screen, you know, especially if you're really into movies, you know, you want like your seat, like you got your good seat at the theater. Which of you would do that and then like just sort of throw your popcorn to the side and put on a blindfold right as the trailers start? Right? I mean, we don't do that. I don't know right off what a ticket price is, but I think it's north of 15 bucks probably for a movie ticket, 20 bucks. Do any of you like go to the movies and throw away the popcorn and put on a blindfold for the next two, two hours? No, that's super weird. People would look at you and be like, why are you at the movie theater with blindfolds on? You got a great seat. You got great popcorn. What are you doing? No, we watch movies at a movie theater. It's what we do. And it's the same at school or Boy Scouts or work or some sports practice or practice for a musical instrument. When we show up at a place, we do the thing we do at that place. We do the reason that we're there. If you don't do that at your job, you're not going to have a job for very long, right? If you don't do that at school, you don't do that at sports, like, you know, sports practice or music practice, you don't practice, you don't play because you don't know how to do it, right? Following Christ is very similar. We're supposed to show up. We're supposed to put in the work. What is the work for us? Not Nehemiah building this wall. What's the work for us? It's to love God, love your neighbor, and be a Christ follower who helps other people be Christ followers. I want to finish up with a last observation. I've said we could focus on people. We could focus on partnership. And lastly, the Jews had a pragmatic passion. What do I mean with all of these P's? 
Well, people are building the wall in front of their house. What they did on their section of the wall mattered. The priests hung the sheep gate because that's the place where the priests were. They, they hung the sheep gate because, see, what would happen is that's the section of the wall in the city where they'd put in a gate. They'd bring animal sacrifices through because it was a, sh- a shorter distance from that gate to the temple, which had been rebuilt. And so the priests needed a place to bring the animals through. The sheep gate had existed before the wall was destroyed, and the sheep gate existed again. So that's bringing the animals through. Now, the priests get mentioned as bringing this, and I'm just diving in. This is just one of many places that we could dive in. But I think the priests get mentioned because if I'm a shepherd or a priest and I'm trying to get, like, sheep to go through the gate, do you know what has to happen? I mean, like, the sheep have to go through the gate, right? It's not rocket science, again. And you can imagine that if a perfumer and a goldsmith and a priest come along and are like, yeah, this is the way we need to bring the animals through, and the perfumer and the goldsmith are like, All right, make the gate open to the outside. The priests who know the sheep are going to say, no, 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 no. You can't make the gate open to the outside. Well, no, 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 no. That's what we're going to do. We're going to make the gate open to the outside, the perfumer and the goldsmith say. And the priests are like, no. I do this every week. We're not making the gate open to the outside. Finally, the perfumer and the goldsmiths relent. They say, okay, fine, we'll get along with it. Why? Well, because it's really hard to push like sheep backward with a giant metal gate. Because if the shepherd like drives them up to the gate and then you have to push them backward and get the gate open. I mean, this is the thing, like the priests have to worry about that. So just let the priest say, open the gate to the inside. The shepherd pushes them right on in and then close the gate behind them. No sheep get out. Nobody has to push the gate backward, right? It's boring stuff. But if you're the priest who's got to do it every week and it's made difficult for you because some Yahoo who's a perfumer decided, well, it's got to open to the outside. We've always had a gate that opens. No, no, enough. (laughs) Now, some of you can do what I've done right now. Get so focused on these bolts and bars and something about the gate opening out and we don't remember. We We lose the point. May I gently redirect this? God in Nehemiah's time wants the wall rebuilt so that a little boy born to a virgin grows up and goes to a temple in Luke chapter 2. A goldsmith needed to build a wall in Jerusalem, and a perfumer needed to build a wall in Jerusalem, and a priest needed to rebuild a gate, whether it opens to the inside or outside, I actually don't know. They needed to do this because centuries later, a baby born in Bethlehem is going to visit a temple that Ezra and Nehemiah's contemporaries rebuilt. And when that little boy goes in that temple, he's going to learn about God. Even though he's the Messiah, he's, even though he's the second person of the Trinity with flesh on living a fully human life according to the will of God, he's going to visit this temple. He's going to take on flesh. He's going to become a man who dies on a cross so that we can be born again. And they needed a wall and a temple, and it didn't matter who built it. Because that man was going to die on the cross for your sins and for my sins so that all of Hyannis could be set free a place that that little boy never saw, or Nehemiah, or Ezra, or the perfumers, or the goldsmiths, or all the rest, so that people in Hyannis, and people in Barnstable, and people everywhere else around could hear about Christ. Kingdom work requires committing our hearts. Are our activities as Christians helping people find Jesus? It's a question worth asking. We have several legitimate, reasonable ideas about what to do as a church, 
But those activities can't be ends in themselves any more than the wall was. The wall had a specific strategic purpose, like keep people from attacking us, which is you know, a good short-term goal. But it can't be an end in itself because God said, I want the wall and I want the temple so when my son is born there, he can live his whole life in a particular place where he lives out the life of God in front of a whole bunch of people, grows up, dies on a cross, and everyone has access to new life through Christ. And that had to happen on earth in this way. And in the same way, our activities can create space on earth where somebody realizes Jesus loves me. Our activities, our things that we do, our way of building something, whatever that God is leading us to build, end up becoming something where somebody says, wow, Jesus is a friend to sinners. Like, I've, like they can end up saying, I've never met anybody who loved me at my worst I've never met anybody who could transform the garbage dump that I've made my life into, except for him. And I found it. That's a moment when Jesus finds someone, just like he did in the pages of Scripture, and says, what do you want? What do you need? Let's sit down. Let's have a meal together. And they find out he's the friend of sinners. He loves me. He cares about me. In Nehemiah's time, God's glory was diminished because of the destruction of Jerusalem. That was their pragmatic passion. Jerusalem's destroyed, the temple's torn down, the wall's torn down, we're going to rebuild the temple, we're going to rebuild the wall. In our time, God's glory, I think, is diminished because people don't see the church as the glorious bride of Christ. What do I mean? Well, I'm going to turn to 1 Peter 2. You can turn there if you want as well, but I'm going to read it to you. 1 Peter 2. This is what Scripture says about you, the church, the glorious bride of Christ, and all the believers across the world through all the centuries. God's word says in 1 Peter 2, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For scripture says, behold, I am laying in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for unbelievers, a stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this they were also appointed. But you, the church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is the condition of God's glory in the world today? People who don't see the beauty of the church. People who don't see a family of people being built. That's people believing, people who are chosen, people who are holy, people for God's own possession, people who proclaim his excellencies people who've been called out of darkness. That's our pragmatic passion. We have the mission, the highest purpose the world has ever known. You can proclaim his excellencies. You can say, I was in darkness, but now I'm in light. You can build relationships with people and say, I'm chosen now. I'm not abandoned. I'm holy. I'm God's precious possession. I have new life. I have everlasting hope. I have eternal life. I have joy from Christ. I'm going to close in a simple way. Somebody has to go first. I say that because Nehemiah 3 says, then Eliashib the high priest 
and down and down and down and down and down, all these names. Somebody has to go first. And I don't think anything makes Eliashib worth mentioning first. Because if you're writing a history book or you're celebrating some grand building project out in the world today, they don't say, let's start with the person most unqualified for the job. They say, let's start with the person who gave the most money, right? <laughs> Build a big wing at the hospital or something or a, a section of a football stadium or something like that. They name it after the person who gave a lot of money typically or the person who's connected in the right way. But in God's word, it just says, then Elisha, the high priest, built what was right next to him, he and the priests. I want you to know that we're not defined by job descriptions, not defined by worldly descriptions or any of the rest. When God chooses these people, all these names, what they really were was builders. These people have pragmatic passion. They say, I'm a child of God. I can build something where I live. I can participate in God's work no matter what my job title is or anything else that would describe me. Somebody has to go first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the ways that we can reflect and think and consider what you're saying to us right now. Thank you that we have skills, each one of us. Thank you that we have skills. We've had, some of us a few years, some of us a few decades, some of us many decades of work history, skill, education, passion, ability, whatever it is, we thank you for all of that. We recognize that you use all of that. You, you took the time to tell us forever who were the perfumers and the goldsmiths and the priests and the brothers and the daughters and all the rest, and we thank you for that. You know who we are, and you see us as we are, and you invite us into your work. I pray that each one of us would know because you are the chief shepherd and because you, Holy Spirit, help us. I pray that each one of us would know what are we supposed to do next? How do we step out? How do we go first? How do we believe that however small our circle might feel, however inadequate we might feel, that we'd actually believe nothing is too difficult for God, that we'd actually believe we are part of what you're doing right now in Centerville, in Yarmouth, in all these different places around all our different zip codes and street names and all the rest. You've got us where we are for a reason, and you can use us right there. And I pray that you'd make it plain. Make it plain when we're gathered. Make it plain when we're individuals. Make it plain when we're small groups so that we have a message to share with everyone else that, that can't help but come out of our lips and show up in our lives. I thank you so much for each one of these people. I pray that you'd pour out your love on them abundantly this afternoon, Tuesday, Friday, in times good, in times bad, in the middle of the night and in the middle of the day, would you show yourself faithful and gracious and true because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who can do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine. We look forward in our lives with hope because just as you told us, there may be trouble in this world, but we can take heart because you've overcome the world and you have the name that is above every name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.